you know, we have been uh, starting our Bible Institute the first year here with uh, coming through the Bible, uh, showing you how to uh, break it down into sections. And each section, your assignment has been, we meet every month, is to get those sections uh, down and then as we go through, tie them all together. And by the end of it, you'll have a complete good biblical breakdown of your Bible. Your Bible breaks down into about 17 different components that are major things that are major divisions. So we started in Genesis 1-1, and we looked at that. Then we went on to uh, God rebuilding the heavens, and we saw that, how important that is. We got into the story of Adam and Eve and how important they were. The next big section was Noah and the Flood. Then we saw uh, God's plan beginning to unfold, and we're trying to, and I keep reiterating this, we're trying to make sense of this for you, how that you <clears throat> see this thing developing through your Bible. I, I think that's really crucial. Most people don't see the Bible uh, as God intended for them to see it. They see it as a good book, a holy book, a book tells you what you can't do, you know, <clears throat> and, uh, and all those things. But they don't see it as a developing process of God's plan. And when we got into the fifth section, we saw Abraham. And that begins a, <clears throat> a whole section unto itself in the Bible. Now we're beginning to see God's plan begin to take uh, embryo uh, shape. We now begin to see the foundation of the nation of Israel. How that Abraham was in time to become the father of the Jews as far as the beginning of the people. Abraham uh, is called a Hebrew. He's the first man who's called a Hebrew in the Bible. And, uh, you know, that's very important to see the significance of that. Then the next section we looked at after Abraham, when we saw all the development, was them going down into Egypt. And going down into Egypt really uh, was for us the calling out uh, of the nation of Israel. God... Uh, you know, formulated them, and then he put them down into Egypt, and he strengthened them for uh, 400 years, and then he called them out, and we saw the importance of that. Then we saw, you know, uh, then we saw, like I said, the, the calling out uh, of Israel. Uh, Abraham was taken out. Uh, then we saw the establishment that was going into the land. Uh, we saw the kings of Israel, and then we saw the next section, the demise. Every one of these sections is like a, a portal picture of, of the Old Testament. And that's what you need to understand how to do it. In time, once we get these 17 sections down, then we'll come back and we'll start putting all of the other books in the Bible uh, as they relate to it. So at the end of the day, you'll have a complete picture. The 10th one was the captivity of the nation of Israel. And and, uh, you know, the times of the Gentiles, how very important that is. How that not only was important, uh, what was going on in the time, but how it shaped the future uh, for the first coming of Christ. And, of course, the uh, 11th was the, second com or the first coming of Christ, and we, we talked about that. Um, last time, we, our 12th section, we talked about the church age and uh, how important that the church age really is to understand it. And, uh, you know, why uh, God had a church age and all the different aspects of that. Now, today, we're going to move into uh, the next section, and that's going to be the tribulation period. 
And uh, the, the times of the Gentiles, uh, as we know it, uh, starts in 606 B.C. with the captivity of the, the nation of Israel. It runs up through the time period that we're living in today and continues on up through the tribulation right into the uh, second coming of Christ. And that terminates the uh, times of the Gentiles. And of course, um, you know, everything that we see during that period of time, the Gentiles are now in charge. Um, the kingdom of heaven, which was given to the nation of Israel, is now terminated, or at least postponed. So it's gone. So there is no uh, kingdom uh, for Israel at this point in time, and it's turned over to the Gentiles in a physical sense. What happens in the church age, as we saw last week, is now a spiritual kingdom comes in. And that will be the spiritual kingdom of God. And now we start to see where the Old Testament was a literal kingdom with literal battles, with literal situations. Now we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, for our kingdom now is a spiritual one. That is going to the church age, as we saw last week, runs up to the rapture of the church. And at the rapture of the church, um, you know, this is where uh, we see the church being taken out. And uh, you, you, today, you're finding more and more churches that uh, uh, go against the rapture. They don't believe there is a rapture. Um, uh, it's hard for me to believe that people could even fall for that, but I understand that when you lose your Bible, you lose everything. I mean, the rapture, the concept of a rapture is taught all the way through the Bible. But again, when you lose your Bible, then, you know, everything falls apart, so to speak, and you, you can't find yourself. So we're left to men now who come up with these ideas and reject solid teachings in the Bible that 75, 50 years ago were, were, were the fundamentals of what the Bible taught. And now we, we're, making that, we're making that move, we're making that shift. And of course, uh, it's... It's all in preparation for when the Antichrist comes. You know, he has to get rid of the concept of, of the rapture. Uh, and, of course, the rapture is, you hear it all the time, people reject it because you don't find the word rapture in the Bible. And, um, you know, it, that's kind of stupid. Um, you don't find the word Bible in the word Bible either, but we have a Bible. So rejecting something because you don't find the name of it. But that, that really goes to show you how really inept they are when it comes to the Bible. Because even though the Bible uh, doesn't have the word rapture within it, it certainly teaches the concept of somebody being taken out. And the word rapture has become so commonplace that we use it as an identification of what the Bible calls a harvest. And in the Bible, you'll find that there are, there are three parts to this harvest. And um, you'll find the, the Bible talks, you found this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll find where the Bible talks about the first fruits. That'll be the Old Testament saints. You'll find out, you find in that same verse where he talks about the, them that are Christ at his coming. That'll be the church. And then you'll find it says, then cometh the end. And that'll be the uh, Old Testament saints. And uh, you'll find in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 16 that within their Old Testament structure, Three times a year, all the males were to appear before uh, the Lord. And, of course, that is, a, that is a reference to the three calling out or gatherings or the three parts to the harvest. Because they don't understand the concept of a harvest, 
they they could never grasp that they're, they're so focused on the word rapture, and of course uh, they just move, lose the whole aspect of the Bible. So the rapture is a is a is a viable teaching in the Word of God. Uh, it has been and stood for uh, ever since the New Testament was put together. All the Bible believing groups believed in it, taught it. All the great Bible teachers that were Bible believing guys around 1900, Clarence Larkin, you know, all of those great guys, they they all taught it. Everybody believed it. But because we're in a world today where we have no fixed position, and the Christianity is very fluid, and it it gets blown about by every wind of doctrine because it itself has no foundational doctrines. We see where this happens. This is something you need to remember. Because the more we get, the closer we get to the things of the Lord in the second coming and our own rapture, um, the more you're going to see this begin to deteriorate. Uh, the church is, is in a very sad state of affairs. And, you know, the, the major doctrines that once were the key doctrines are now um, being forsaken left and right. When the rapture takes place, this is when the tribulation period begins. And um, I want to show you a key verse. Come over to Isaiah chapter 42. And uh, this, is, this is a good verse for everything uh, about your Bible. And it's a, it's a key principle. And uh, it's one that you want to always remember. And uh, it always will bring you back to what God is doing in the Bible. Now, here's what he says in 42.9. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible that tells you that the upcoming events that we uh, are foretold in the Bible, the Bible will give you insight into them, and it will help you better understand them. Uh, God, will, God will not spring... Um, surprises on his people. But his people get surprised because the only way he reveals truth and, and the things that he's going to do is through his word. So when you dump the book, you're in trouble as far as getting any revelation from God. And of course, uh, the things to come, as we know, is the rapture of the church, uh, the second coming, which we'll study here uh, probably the next time, uh, the millennial, which reign of Christ, which we'll get into after that. The uh, Bible talks about the new heavens and new earth. The Bible talks about eternity. All those things, all those things are really mysteries to mo most of the Bible teachers today. Um, the last great, deep, fundamental Bible teachers went out in the 40s and the 50s with, with Clarence Larkin and, and, and some of those guys, and obviously, certainly Dr. Ruckman, um, and, uh, and, but they're all gone now. And, you know, these things are in the Bible. People, pastors, they, they know the terminology. If you would say to the average pastor um, in, in, a, in, in the city today uh, and ask him if he believes in the millennial reign of Christ, he most certainly would say yes. Ask him to take you in the Bible and show you the definitive passages on it and work you through it. He, he'd never be able to do it. And you're going to find that the great writers today of Christian whatever, whether it be about the Bible or things about uh, things in the Bible, um, they're, they're really at a loss for uh, a biblical depth to these things. And yet the Bible clearly tells us that, that before these things spring forth, he's going to show them to us. 
And he shows them to us in detail. The tribulation period is probably the most written about, preached about, talked about, most known um, period of time in all of the Bible. Everybody, because of TV and the movies and the Exorcist and, you know, uh, the Da Vinci Code and, and all that stuff, everybody, everybody understands about uh, the tribulation, at least the, the word concept of the tribulation. And you would be hard-pressed. I mean, you, may, you, may, you could ask a thousand people if they know about, uh, you know, uh, some deep thing in the Bible when they wouldn't know it. But you bring up the word tribulation. And everybody can pretty much identify with it. It's pretty much a universal understanding time period. But that being said, it was is without a doubt. It is without a doubt the most confusing and misunderstood uh, period of time uh, in all of the Bible. There's no question about it. Now, people are completely screwed up when it comes to understanding the tribulation period. My goal today is to have you understand it. I'm going to take it apart, look at the different pieces. I'm going to show you uh, the passages that will really help you put it together. Uh, I want you to understand uh, this section as we have done all the sections. I want you to have a thorough understanding of it because when, you, when we bolt all these 17 sections together uh, or you have a question that somebody asks you about the tribulation, you now are, are, are ready to go with it. When I first got right with the Lord, I read two books, and uh, the first book was uh, written by a guy by the name of Salem Caban, and it was 666, and it was a book about the tribulation period, and uh, I had just gotten right with the Lord, and um, I must say that that book really uh, lit a fire under me as far as understanding um, my Bible. He wrote it in a very good way. I mean, the book's still in print, I think. You probably could find it. I'm not telling you to buy it. It ain't worth, it ain't worth the money. Even if they're giving it away, I wouldn't take it. But at that particular point in my life, it really, it really lit my fire, so to speak, of the things that I didn't know about the Bible. It wasn't until I got a hold of Dr. Ruckman's book on the, uh, on the Antichrist that I really began to see uh, how it really went down. And uh, the two books were a great contrast to me, and still are to this day. I, I think about it all the time, the contrast of, of the standard viewpoint of the tribulation period versus the biblical viewpoint of it. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's without a doubt the most misunderstood uh, time event in the Bible that everybody seemed to know about. Now, the definitive passage on the tribulation is Matthew chapter 24, and I want to turn over there. Matthew chapter 24 will be your definitive passage. And I'm going to kind of walk you through this chapter. If you want to, if you've got your little rapidograph pen, it'd be easy to mark a few little notes here without just getting in. I wouldn't do it with something that would bleed through, but... Um, this is without a doubt the definitive passage in the Bible on the tribulation period. And, uh, and, and along with that, the keys to Christ's coming. And it starts in verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came unto him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be 
uh, be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, he's making a reference right there to the tribulation period. And of course, they don't get it. But this all happens in the destruction of the tribulation period, the second coming. Now look at verse 3, there's a paragraph mark. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us what shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. Now the second thing you want to see here, he's on the Mount of Olives. And he's teaching this from the Mount of Olives, and this is exactly where he returns at the second coming of Christ, is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is right uh, west of the eastern gate where he's going to go in. And, um, you know, this is the, uh, this is the spot where he, uh, he comes back to at the second coming. But they asked two key questions, and I want you to see this. And mark this in your Bible if you don't have it. The first question they asked will be the sign of thy coming. And uh, the second question they asked will be the end of the world. Now, look at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now, remember this. What he does from verse 5 on is answer those two questions. Now, you've got to see that. Otherwise, you're going to get lost in this. And this is, this, is, this is how you lay out your Bible. You started to get a context. We see the context is the tribulation. We then see that they ask two questions. We don't want to get off track and go off the la-la land on the rest of this because the, everything he says now from this point on is going to go back to these two questions. Shine of thy coming, end of the world. You want to remember that. <clears throat> and Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, <clears throat> whenever, whenever um, you find the word, and most of you already know this, but whenever you find that word, the end, the context will always be the tribulation period. Uh, when you get over here a little bit farther in verse 13, uh, it says, but he that shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved. The end will always be the end of the tribulation period, wherever you find it in the Bible. And you want to remember that. That is one of the key words. We'll, we'll give you key words here uh, at some point, but you want to remember that. By the time we get there, I'll probably have given them all to you. Uh, verse uh, 7, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. Now let me stop here and show you what I'm talking about. A lot of people out there, and I, you know, they talk about that the, um, they use as a sign uh, for the, the, the end times is, in their estimation, the rise of earthquakes over the last hundred years or so, ever since earthquakes have been recorded. And uh, I, I guess there has been an increase on a steady basis, more, more earthquakes. And of course, they take that and take verse 7 to try to use that to prove that of where we're at and how close we are. And of course, keep in mind, everything down here is an answer to these two questions. These, these earthquakes here, as these nations rising against nations and the rumors of wars, they all take place within the tribulation period. This is not talking about the church age. There is no reference in any way, shape, or form 
to the church age in Matthew chapter 24. It's all a reference to the tribulation period and the two questions that they ask him. So the earthquakes here are not a seismographic uh, increase over the last hundred years proving we're getting close to the Lord. I didn't need that to know I was getting close to the Lord. I just got to go to church and see how dead they are. So, but this is, this is where we're at. And notice it says in verse 8, on all these are the beginning of sorrows. Now that's another key word. When you look at, and I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but many times when you find the word sorrow or sorrows, uh, I'd say maybe 80, 85%, you're going to find that the context is going to be the tribulation period. Um, and, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And, uh, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And here is one of the verses that is a, is a good verse that you need to have marked in here. Uh, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. In the tribulation period, um, a Jew or a Gentile who gets proselyted into becoming a Jew, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, when he, uh, the only way, the two ways that they get, they get eternal life, uh, saved, and now, and I'll use the word saved, I'm not using the word they don't get saved like you and I do, that's another big, we'll talk about that later on too, is the fact that he either has to endure into the end, and the end for him would be down in the valley of Armageddon when the Lord comes back and literally raptures them out and, and saves them, or uh, he gets his head cut off. He gets caught and becomes that sacrifice that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And, and in, uh, verse 14 is another key. And this clearly shows you that nothing in this is about the church age. And this gospel of the kingdom. Now, what we're looking at here is not the gospel of the grace of God, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're looking here as the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, the preaching here, and you want to put this in the back of your mind till we get there a little bit later on, the preaching of the kingdom here to unto all nations will be done by the 144,000, and we'll talk about that when we get there. Now, here's verse 15. Verse 15, everything up to here has brought us up through the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Nation against nation, rumors of wars, uh, people coming and saying, I am Christ, the false prophets. All that has now taken place in the first half of the tribulation period. And now, verse 15, you need to draw a little line under verse 14 before 15. That starts the second half of the tribulation period. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Now, this is the last half of the tribulation. This abomination of desolation is talked about in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll, we'll get to it in a little bit. Daniel chapter 11, uh, Daniel chapter 8. It's when the Antichrist comes to the peak of his power, and he goes into the temple in Jerusalem. He sits down on the throne, and now he claims to be God. And this becomes the, what is known as the abomination of desolations. And so, at that point, the Jew recognizes that who he really is and that he uh, is not the Messiah. And what happens in verse 16, 17, and 18, we've talked about as we come through uh, 
Proverbs and some of the places there, uh, they, are, they flee into the mountains. Uh, they're on the housetop. They see, they see him coming, and uh, off they go. Now, verse 19 says, And woe unto them that are with child, uh, and to them that give suck in those days. Now, there's another key word. You always want to watch the word those days. Those days, maybe not 100% of the time, but certainly a high 90% of the time, when you find the word those days in a context or a story, it's pretty much going to show you that that story is dealing with the second, uh, the tribulation period. That's another one of those key words. Uh, verse 20, But pray that your flight not be in winter, neither on the Sabbath day, the flight being fleeing from Jerusalem. Now look at verse 21. Now you want to mark 21. If you've got a red marker, I, I just put a square around this whole verse. Uh, this is the key verse. This shows you where you're at now, time-wise. For then shall be great tribulation. Now the tribulation is broken down, and we're going to see it here in a little bit, into two sections. The first section is simply called the tribulation. The second half is called the great tribulation. So now we know that we are in the great tribulation in the last three and a half years. And he says, except those days be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, there, believe it not. For there shall be many false Christs and many false prophets, and, sh and shall show great signs and wonders, inasmuch as, if it was possible, they should deceive the very elect. Now the elect here is the nation of Israel. One of the things that people lose sight of one of the fundamental rules of the Bible, I think, anyhow, is always to stop and see who the Bible in any particular passage or chapter or book is being written to. And, um, you know, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 24, the people who try to make all this the church and try to make all this something to do with the church, uh, you'll realize that uh, he is speaking to, uh, to Jewish apostles and disciples. He's not speaking to any Gentiles here. So all of this about the signs of the coming have nothing to do with you and me. This is a Jew asking the Lord Jesus Christ about what they should be looking for for the end of the world and the, uh, and the signs of their coming Messiah. There isn't a Gentile in the bunch. These answers are not given to the church. They're there for me to see it understand it, add light to the whole concept of it, but I'm not the one asking the question. The church are not asking these two questions. The Jews are. So I don't know how somebody could get to the fact that here's a bunch of Jews asking a question about the Jewish Messiah and a bunch of Gentiles horning in and saying, well, he's writing this to us. Not writing it to you. He's writing it to the Jews. You and I get to see it, but we have to put it into a context. And this is a place in the Bible that is written for me, but is not written to me. And these are things that you always need to keep in the back of your mind. You know, learning your Bible is not as hard as it seems. If you just keep in mind a few basic fundamental rules, and one of those basic fundamental rules is obviously, one, establish the context, but always ask yourself who he's speaking to. We, as Gentiles, we just think that everything in there is written right to us, so i got to get something out of it for me. And, of course, that's not true. There's 
everything in that Bible has something for you, but it may not be directly to you. You have to be able to see where it's going. Otherwise, that's how you get, you get messed up. He's writing this to Jews, Jewish disciples who are asking a question about their coming Messiah. This is not a bunch of Christians wanting to know when he's going to come back and, you know, I want to get it on the 700 clubs so everybody knows. This is not what he's talking about. This is a bunch of Old Testament pork-abstaining Jews, disciples, who are still under the Old Testament because the New Testament hasn't come into effect yet, who are looking for their Messiah, and they're talking to Jesus on the Mount of Olives about his coming to them, not the church. And that's very important that you get this. Um, Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chamber, believe it not. For the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, we don't have time to get into it this morning, but you want to put a reference next to this, which is Psalms 29. Psalms 29, when it talks about the lightning uh, and, uh, and all of this and the thunder, it, it gives you the definitive on it as being God's coming and God's voice. Um, for whithersoever the carcass is, there shall the eagles be gathered together. Now that's a, revel, that's a re- reference to Revelation 19.17. That'll be the battle of Armageddon and all the dead bodies that are left. And that'll be Revelation 16.8, uh, Joel 2.10, uh, Joel 3.15, and many other places in the Bible. Now, notice there's a paragraph mark in 29. And now we're going to move from the first question, uh, or the second question, the end of the world, and now we're going to look at the second question. And I need, you need to mark that in your Bible. You need to mark here uh, in verse um, 29, right off to the left of it, uh, that this is the answer to, this, to the, to the uh, first question that they ask. And then put over there um, in verse, uh, uh, verse 4, the answer to the second question, and then put those two questions in there. That'll help you. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the, tri- all tri- all the tribes, the twelve tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds uh, from one end of heaven to another. Now, he has shifted gears now, where when he answered question number two, uh, the end of the world, he showed them about the tribulation. Now, when they ask about the sign of his coming, which was the first question, now he begins to shift gears and he moves uh, into verse 29, uh, the second coming of Christ. And then in verse 32, he just gave you 29, 30, and 31, a short synopsis of the second coming. Now in verse 32, he gives them the sign of his coming. And this is very important to see this. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and put forth leaves, know ye that the summer is nigh. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. 
Uh, every time you find the word doors in the Bible, um, uh, well, I mean, not every time, but when, when, you, when you find them in a, in a key passage that you know is a second coming, it'll always be something to do with the Lord, Lord's second coming. A door, that door is found in John chapter 10. It opens, somebody comes down, it opens, and somebody goes up. And uh, it's, uh, it's, the, uh, it's, the, it's actually a literal door up there that they go in and out of. Um, so likewise, when you see all these things, know that it is near coming of Christ. It's the context, not the tribulation, the coming of Christ. The summer is nigh. Likewise, when you see all these things, know that it is near even at the door. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now what he gives us here in 32 uh, is an illustration that illustrates the first question, the sign of his coming. And it's built around the nation of Israel. The fig tree in the Bible, and you'll want Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13 for this. Other places too, I'm just giving you the key ones. Um, you're going to find that uh, Israel will be the fig tree. And as a fig tree, Israel was created by God to bear fruit. And she doesn't bear any fruit. You'll remember over there in the Gospels that Jesus came out and saw the fig tree that it didn't have any fruit on it, and he cursed it. That's a picture of Israel's spiritual condition at the first coming of Christ. And uh, so what he's saying here is this. <clears throat> The parable of the fig tree, when his branch is yet tender, he putteth forth leaves, know that the summer is nigh. Now, that has to do with the regathering of the nation of Israel. And if technically speaking, if you want to go where the leaves, put forth leaves, um, that would be 1948, when she becomes a nation. I am not sure that, uh, you know, in God's mind, it didn't predate that a little bit, but probably for, for a theological home base, that's probably when it's talking about, because that's when she did become a nation. And uh, uh, it says, so likewise, when you see all these th uh, things, know it is near at the doors. Um, so we see that the, the branch is yet tender, it's just a brand new nation, and putteth forth leaves. Know that the summer is nigh. So we, we know that 1948 will be the, uh, the only sign given. Remember now, up here, uh, question one was the sign of thy coming. Now you get a lot of people, again, who look for signs in everything. I mean, um, everything that comes up, you know, they look for a sign. Um, it's, you know, it's just crazy. You know, the blood moon, you know, all the goofy stuff that people come up with. And the only thing people dumber than the guys who teach that are the people who believe it. Fundamentally, here's what you got. The only sign, the only sign given There'll be no other sign from God. Maybe it's a sign from your mom. I don't know. But it isn't a sign from God. The only sign given was Israel becoming a nation. That's all you need. If you know your Bible, you can figure it out pretty close from there. Let me show you what I mean. 
Keep your finger here and come back to Song of Solomon chapter 2. <clears throat> now he says, learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender, it putteth forth leaves. So the fig tree is now beginning to bud. That would represent the nation of Israel most likely becoming a nation in 1948. Notice you have leaves on tender branches. Now watch this. Come over to, come over to Song of Solomon chapter 2. Now Song of Solomon chapter 2 is the rapture of the church. No question about it. And look at verse 8. It says, the voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. He standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the window, showing himself at the lattice. Now watch verse 10. My beloved spake and said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Now there's the rapture of the church right there. It's Christ calling out his bride right there. Now look at the time frame. Watch. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of the birds. It gives you a time frame around May or June. He says, the winter is past, the rain is gone. There's April, flowers appear. April showers bring May flowers. And then he comes. Now, this is why, and they don't know it. Nobody's following the Bible here, but you're locked into it, whether you believe it or not. This is why the two months from you're going to have weddings up the kazoo will be May and June. Because that is sometime time frame given for the rapture of the church. I'm just telling you what it says there. Now watch. Verse 12. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of the birds has come. And the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Now look at this, the next verse. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs. Now you see that? The last time we saw it in Matthew 24, she just put forth leaves. Now the leaves between 1948 and the rapture of the church has now grown into green figs. The tribulation period will ripen those figs, and in the millennium, when Christ comes, she will finally bear as the fig tree of God the fruit that God designed for her to bear. See how that thing works? But you've got to understand your Bible, how to put that together. You don't get that by, you know, just, just reading the books that are out there and trying to figure it out. You've got to get into some serious stuff here. So he's answering question one here, the sign of thy coming. And he's saying that the only sign given is going to be the restoration of the nation of Israel back into the land. Now, if any student of history and who believes the Bible would see how that has developed, uh, once you understand that you can't separate God and the Bible from history, you get a complete understanding of how history is about. I brought you through the, I brought you through the five stages. Remember the formulation, the uh, the uh, calling out, the establishment, the demise, and the captivity. Then we go into the times of the Gentiles and a blank period for the nation of Israel. Now you want to add a sixth one to those five, okay? The sixth one to those five will be after 
all those things take place toward the end of the church age, then the number six one of the nation of Israel will be with the regathering of the nation of Israel. When you put that, protract that through history of the world, you'll clearly see that everything in the world revolves around that nation of Israel and God establishing his kingdom through them. So you have the formulation under Abraham. Then you have the calling out going down into Egypt. Then you have the establishment under Joshua and Samuel and the kings. Then you have the demise when they all fall apart. Then you have the captivity, which brings in the times of the Gentiles. It runs all this space and expanse up to where we're at now. And in 1900, 1880, wherever you want to put it in there, we begin to see the sixth phase of God dealing with the nation of Israel, and that will be the regathering. In 1900, we'll say, for just give it a round number, um, we begin to see the Zionist movement. The Zionist movement goes through the next 50 years and brings us up to all the events of World War I, World War II, all the events in Europe and England, and finally uh, dumps Israel in the land on 1948. So you have with that then a complete carrying out. So there's your number six one. And, of course, it's all built around the concept of the fig tree. Yeah. Back in uh, Song of Solomon, in the end of verse 13, it says, Arise, my fair love. Is that still the rapture of the church? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes, it is. So, this is, this is you know, once, you, once you understand your Bible, you realize you don't have to look outside for anything else. The only sign given to us uh, as the sign of his coming is going to be the regathering of the nation of Israel back into the land. And that is talked about many, many places in the Old Testament. Many, many places. And um, it, it's a thing. I could take you back in the Old Testament and show you where it, you find the fires of the Nazi concentration camps, of them being burned up, uh, and then going back and being regathered. It, it's all recorded for you. Now, now here's verse 34. So we know from 33 that 1948, most likely, if not before, but I'm going to stick with 1948, is when they put forth their leaves. We know at the rapture of the church, those leaves have matured to the place where now it's green figs. When the tribulation comes, it's going to mature it even more. And then in the millennium, it's going to bear forth the fruit that it never did. Now, here's your timeline. Verily, verily, at verse 34, verily, verily, I say unto you, um, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now, what he's saying is this. Whoever was born in 1948, and that may be 100 billion zillion people, um, there's going to be a last one who dies. A couple, what, 10 years ago, the, the last World War I veteran died. That closed that generation. World War II vets are dying 1,100 people, 1,200 people a day. There will come a time in the near future when that generation will close, that the last person who fought in World War II will be dead, just like the last person who uh, fought in World War I. Believe it or not, you're just going to find this hard to believe. I remember when the last Civil War veteran died. 
It's an act of the 60s. And he was the last Civil War veteran. And he died in 1960, somewhere in there, 59 maybe. I remember, because I was just a little guy then, but I remember Life magazine. And um, so that ended that generation. So what he's saying is this. Say there was 100 billion people born in 1948. That is the year of their birth. At some point in time, that, that the last person being born, everybody else is going to die. There's going to be one left. And that's going to end that generation. What he's saying is that the person who was born in 1948, that last person will not die till all these things are fulfilled. So he's given you a basic timeline. I know. The Bible says no man knows the day and the hour. I'm not putting a day and hour to it. I'm putting it into a generation for you. But I'm telling you this. This is the sign and the only sign that is given. Now, here's the problem with this. Because your next question is, what's a generation in the Bible? Well, unfortunately or fortunately, there's, there's several. Genesis 15, 13 gives 100 years for a generation. Psalms 90 obviously gives 70 years for a generation. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 17 gives 42 years. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 gives 120 years. And these are the ones that we know about. So on the low side, it's 42. On the high side, it's 120. Now, 1948 to 1917, how many years is that? Because you didn't go to school? How many years is that? How many? 69. Never mind. Let's just move on with it. Takes you. <laughs> You're all having a tough time this morning. Anybody know? It, what is it? 69 years? Okay. So we've already passed the, uh, the, uh, the 42 years. The rapture could come this next year and make 70. Uh, or it could, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to wait till that last person dies. It can happen any time between there. So we could pass 70, look for 100, 120, and it happened in a week after. I mean, it, it, it isn't like when that person dies. Though I will tell you, back in Genesis when you had Methuselah, I'm just telling you, Methuselah means... When he is gone, judgment shall come. When you figure out the age of Methuselah and what he represents on the day Methuselah died is the day the flood came. So, you never, that Bible just always stays ahead of us, man. It always does. And I love it. I mean, I just, I don't want to know. I don't care. If, you know, if, I know me. If I thought the rapture was coming next week, I'd go out and buy everything, put it on my charge card, and not worry about it. I know how I am. <laughs> so I'm glad I don't know. I'm glad I don't know. So it's one of those things where uh, this is the answer to his, to his, what is the sign of his coming? So you got two questions here, and these two questions define for you uh, the tribulation period. And then he goes on and it says that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not. But of that day and of the hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so be the coming of the Son of Man. Now that's one of, if you don't have that blocked out in red, in your magic, or not your magic marker, but your, your China marker, uh, I'll tell you, uh, that is a key verse. Uh, you two verses in the Bible. Um, 
uh, shows you the, the, a lot of information. One of them is the days of Noah, another one is the days of Lot. And verse 38 says, For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. In fact, when you go back to Isaiah 54, 9, and you want to put this in your Bible right here. Let's go ahead and do it now. Let me put this little note in. In Isaiah 54, 9, it tells us that the time that Noah goes through the flood, that that has something to do with the time that the Jews are going to go through the tribulation period. You want to put that in there. Uh, it's a... It's very important. So there is the there is a definitive passage on it. Now I want to give you another thing that is very confusing today about the tribulation, and I want you to come over to Daniel chapter nine. You're going to find a number of different names for the tribulation in your Bible, and I'll give those to you here uh, as we get on through here. But one of the things that I want you to uh, I want you to understand is that uh, one of the names that you hear, and many people today don't understand it, <coughs> is that the tribulation is called Daniel's 70th week. And it's based on what takes place in, in Daniel chapter 9. This is probably one of the hardest things for a young Christian to grasp. It took me months to figure it out. I'm going to give it to you in 15 minutes. And I did all the work for you. But you want to write it down in this simple little formula that I'm going to give you. And then put it in your Bible right by Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, verse 24 down through the end. Put it in there where you can follow it, make it understandable to you. I'll make it real easy for you. Now here's what he says in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and uh, upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy uh, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to the restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And the street shall be built again in the wall, even in uh, troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of uh, the prince of that shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now this is a reference there, destroy the city and sanctuary. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said on the Mount of Olives that these stones won't be left unturned. That's what he's talking about. If you want to put that in there. Depends on how exact you want to be with your Bible. Uh, and the end thereof shall beat with a flood, and the end of the war desolations are determined. Now we're going to hold right there. Now, he says 70 weeks are determined. Okay, let me tell you what this means. This is why it's called Daniel's 70th week. Seven, here's, what, here's what we're dealing with. You have, he says, 70 weeks. Now the formula here is that seven years... For each week. So you have 70 weeks. You basically have 490 years. 70 times 7. 490 years. What he's saying here is this. 70 weeks are determined. Let me just make it easier for you. What he's saying here is 490 years are determined. And I hit it in a, in a little code of 70 weeks. And each week 
is equal to one year. Add them up and you got 490. That's what he's saying. So this 70 weeks here is in reality 490 years of time. Then he tells you that it's from the decree to go back. And he says from that decree to the Messiah. And that decree is most generally accepted as 446 B.C. Will be 490 years till the Messiah shows up. Now, here's the deal. Four hundred and eighty-three years from that point is when Christ came to this earth at the first coming of Christ. This will bring us up to four hundred and eighty-three years or sixty-nine weeks. We're one week short. We're one we're seven years short of the second coming of Christ when Christ shows up. Now look at verse 25. He shows up on the 483rd year, or 69 weeks. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to the restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be uh, seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, and the streets shall be built. Enough. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. There's the crucifixion. Now notice how he puts this little postscript in there. Uh, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. You know, he died for you and for me. See that thing in there? So at 483 years and 69 weeks, Christ gets crucified. Messiah gets cut off. When he gets cut off, the Jews make their final rejection of him, and the kingdom goes into a mystery state, it gets rejected again in Acts chapter 1 through 7. Then it moves into the church age. And now we are left with Daniel's 70th week has run 69 weeks and is one week short. That one week short will be a seven-year period. That one week short being a seven-year period will be the seven years of the tribulation. That's why it's called Daniel's 70th week. See how that works? That's not confusing if you break it down that way. It's pretty easy to understand. You basically are working with 490 years from the time of the decree to rebuild it till the Messiah shows up uh, or uh, as their second coming Messiah. Not just when he's born, but when he's received. And of course, that would be 483 years and then they reject him. So it all goes into a, a, a temporary holding pattern. So we are now at 69 weeks with one week to go. The church age comes in, and uh, when the tribulation starts, it lasts seven years because that's the last year we will make the 490. See how that works? Just get it down that simple. Get it on a piece of paper so you can understand it, and then put it in your Bible alongside that so it will work for you. And it's not complicated. Uh, most books that I've read have just make it, and I don't know why, they make it so complicated. It ain't complicated. It's just dealing with 490 years and following the breakdown. And then everything you got is right there. You just want to deal with what you have. And you want to understand that. <clears throat> now, the next thing I want you to see about the tribulation <clears throat> 
is that the tribulation <coughs> is broken in, we talked about this, it's broken into two sections. Two sections of three and a half years each, making seven. The first time will be uh, just simply called the tribulation. Uh, you'll find references to it in the Bible. As we saw in Matthew chapter 24 at the split, the second three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. Now, <clears throat> come over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Keep your finger in Daniel 9. We're going to come back there in a moment. But come over here to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll show you the first half. Now this is, I want you to notice the difference here. This is Paul writing to the churches. This isn't Matthew. You're going to find a different approach here. This isn't James. This isn't Hebrews. This isn't First or Second Peter. This is the apostle to the church writing to a New Testament local church, telling them, giving them instructions on what they are to look for and to believe. This is different than Matthew 24. You have got to see this. Now he says this, <clears throat> 5.1. But of the times and the seethrens, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord uh, so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, <clears throat> he's taking for granted that he doesn't have to write this to God's people because he's assuming God's people are studying their Bibles. Lo, did he not get a vision of the 20th and the 21st century. <laughs> For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction come upon them and prevail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, the peace and the safety is the first three and a half years. When the Antichrist comes, he makes a false alliance with everybody in the world. He kind of sucks them in, so to speak. <clears throat> he ceases all world's problems. He puts an end to all of the strife and everything that's going on. And uh, everybody, everybody's pretty happy. He makes a false alliance with the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and then for the first three and a half years, everything is going well. And he's using this time to position himself for his ultimate goal to destroy and wipe out the nation of Israel. And we know why. We've talked about it before. But then he says in verse 3, For when they shall say peace and safety, notice the, notice the punctuation, <clears throat> then sudden destruction cometh upon them as a travail upon a woman with child. Now, right along that woman travailing child, put Re Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. You'll find that woman in travail again in chapter 12. <clears throat> but ye brethren, nah, see now? She's talking to the church. See, for when they shall say peace and safety, and then he says in verse 4, but ye brethren, he's making a distinction between the two, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're all children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And of course, <clears throat> he's talking to the church here and he's saying, the mystery of iniquity is already at work, even in Paul's time. 
And what he's saying here is the fact that, that you ought to see this day coming. This goes along with Proverbs, you know, the prudent man foreseeth evil. I mean, you should see these things developing. They may not affect you directly. You may die long before they get here in, in Paul's time writing this, but you need to understand what's happening. <clears throat> Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice how that kind of mirrors over there in Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> there's a lot of Christians who believe that the church is going through the tribulation period. I find more and more of them every day. And you either have people who don't believe in the rapture of the church, and usually when they don't believe that, a segment of them think that we are going through the tribulation period. It comes in two teachings. Um, some people teach that we're going through half the tribulation and then we get raptured out. Others teach that we go through the whole tribulation and then we get taken out. What they can't see is those three gatherings in the Bible or three raptures in the Bible. So they see somebody going up which looks like the middle of tribulation. They don't understand what to do with it, so they think it's us. They don't understand that in the Bible there's three gatherings to a harvest, three raptures, if you please. But they can't see it because they don't know their Bible. So they see somebody going up, they assume that it's us. So it leads them to believe that, you know, the church is going through at least half the tribulation or, in some cases, all of the tribulation. And, of course, I'm going to show you now, within the context of Paul writing to the New Testament church, why you know you will never, as a New Testament born-again believer, go through the tribulation period. This is Paul's to the church, but they don't even know where to do with this. They couldn't find it with a laser beam and a flashlight, let alone understand it. Now, we've seen how that he's, he's talking about the tribulation, and he's saying to the times in the season, brethren, I don't have to write unto you. And he's talking about the Jew and what they're going through. Look what he says in verse 9. Uh, verse 8. Let us who are of the light be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Now look at verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? That's the clearest verse in the Bible that tells you the church is not going through the wrath of the tribulation period. We're not going through that wrath. The context of this chapter is the wrath of God and the tribulation. We're not going through it. God didn't appoint us to do that. No, we'll have our own tribulation at the judgment seat of Christ, believe me. But we're not going through that one. That one is designed specifically to bring Israel to her knees. It's her judgment. Unsaved Jed judgment is the great white throne judgment. Your judgment and my judgment is the judgment seat of Christ. Israel's judgment is the tribulation period. It's the wrath of God poured out on this planet and the Bible tells you by the greatest Christian ever lived who started every New Testament local church on the face of the planet is biblically based. He's telling you right there in a letter to the church about the tribulation that you and I as Christians are not appointed under that wrath. End of story. But you find a host of people out there today to believe that. And giving them that verse won't make any difference, believe me. Once you, once you work all your life at being an idiot, you stay an idiot. That is the truth. I mean, stupidity by these people is approached as a virtue, and you ain't going to change it. 
you know, stupidity university, you got your degree, I get it. So we see here that uh, peace and safety. But then it says, then sudden destruction shall come. Now come back to Daniel 9 and I'll show you the last half of it. Now here again, I want you to notice that in verse 26, it brings us up to Messiah being cut off. And it jumps right over the church age. This is a is typical fashion in the Old Testament. You will come up to the nation of Israel dealing with something, you'll come up to the first coming of Christ, and then it'll jump right over the church age and never mention it. And that's what he does here. Why? Because Romans 16 says the church age is a mystery. It wasn't revealed to Paul. But he jumps right over in 26, and look at verse 27. We're right smack dab in the tribulation period. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's seven years. Now that's your peace and safety. Now look at the next part of the verse. And in the middle of the week, three and a half years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and the overspreading of the abominations. He shall make it desolate. There's your abomination of desolations. I showed you in Matthew 24. Even until the consumption and that shall be determined shall be poured upon the desolate. There's your last three and a half years. So he makes a false peace. It lasts for three and a half years. And then the middle of that week, Daniel's 70th week, he breaks that covenant. And then he tries to wipe out. And this begins the great tribulation period, as I showed to you in Matthew there. Now, the Old Testament is filled with references to the tribulation period. Uh, I would say that three major themes in the Old Testament doctrinally. And when you want to talk about a prophetic or doctrinal teaching, uh, you can save yourself a lot of time and a lot of headache and a lot of stupidity by just remembering three things. When it comes to a doctrinal application, the Old Testament will be about the tribulation period, There'll be passages that will deal with the second coming of Christ, and there'll be passages that will deal with the millennial reign of Christ. There'll be those three things. The book of Psalms is <coughs> probably the easiest book to see that in. The book of Psalms, <coughs> doctrinally, uh, wherever you read it, will be those three things. It'll be the Jew in the tribulation period. That'll be typified by David running from Saul or in deep sin from God. It'll be uh, the second coming of Christ, and that'll be David praising God for God coming down and delivering him and getting out of the mess that he's in. Or it'll be the millennial Psalms, and that'll be where God is over the whole earth. And uh, you can, it's just that simple. And, and once, you, uh, once you see that, then Psalms opens itself up to you. Because Psalms then inspiration will be you in a mess running from God, you thanking God for getting out of the mess or you being in fellowship with God every day in your life and, and, and having the blessings and walking with him in those millennial psalms. So, you know, that's what you have. The major and the minor prophets. All you have is the tribulation and the second coming. It's just blood, sweat, and tears through all of them. The major and the minor prophets were written 
by the prophets to the nation of Israel because they're in such a deep mess, sinful mess, that God is sending them the prophets as a last-ditch effort. And all those prophets do is foretell of the coming destruction and doom and coming of what's going to happen to the nation of Israel because of their sin. And then they talk about the fact that there is a redemption in God, that he will heal them and give them. And um, you'll find that all the major and minor prophets, doctrinally, historically, it'll always be Israel in their darkest hour. Doctrinally, it'll always be Israel in the tribulation period in their darkest hour with the second coming of Christ right around the corner. It's just filled through it. Most of the stories in the Bible, books of the Bibles, Joshua, the whole book, is a picture of the second coming of Christ, story after story after story. You find it in Deuteronomy. You find it in Genesis. You find it in every book of the Bible. But when you get into the major and the minor prophets, boy, it is focused on those things. Now, you'll find some names that you want to remember. Uh, you'll find that it's called the tribulation. You'll find that it's called the great tribulation. You'll find that it's called Daniel's 70th week. You'll also find it's called Jacob's time of trouble. You'll also find that it's called time of trouble. Wherever you find one of those phrases, context will be the tribulation period. Um, the tribulation, by definition, is nothing more than God's judgment on Israel to bring her back to God. That's the primary reason for it. And of course, there's a lot of sub-reasons, but that is the main deal. Israel will only hearken to the worst calamity that could happen before she'll come back, much like you and me. You know, we have the option to get right with God and make it right all the time. We have to wait till there's some catastrophe in our life that rattles our bell. That's the way it works. Now, come over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I want to show you, I want to show you, cover this with you. As I said when we started, the tribulation period is, is one of the most known, but one of the least understood. And there's a lot of heresy being taught about it, and um, it doesn't take long to read somebody's book or to just listen to somebody talk about it, and um, you can see how bad it is. <clears throat> now, there have been a lot of movies about the rapture of the church, a lot of books written. <clears throat> and they always focus on <clears throat> some scenario where somebody, before the rapture, they either a dad or a mom or family or friends or whatever, <clears throat> their friends go to church, they don't go to church. They don't want to hear nothing about it. <clears throat> friends witness to them and tell them about the rapture. <laughs> Lakers are playing tonight. I don't have time to hear about the rapture. Well, they wake up one morning and all their friends are gone. The world's in chaos. And the rapture has taken place and now they're left behind. And, <clears throat> you know, so what happens now in the movie or the book is they enter into a journey realizing that they missed the rapture, realizing that their friend was right, realizing that they have to now uh, come to God, find God, and get through this terrible time period. 
they all they all go the same way. I mean, there's a few little twists to it, but it, it all goes the same way. They they and, and as I speak this, let me show you the, the depth of stupidity. As I speak this, there are people burying Bibles in their backyard, so with a note left someplace in the house, so their loved one who misses the rapture may find that note, dig up the Bible, and the plan of salvation is clearly laid out in there, hoping that in the tribulation they'll, they'll find Christ. Noble. That's very noble of you. Very nice. Very good. My heart warmed by that kind of dedication. <clears throat> There's people with actually sell miss the rapture kits. What to do if you miss the rapture? And uh, it, it's got a plan laid out. What are you supposed to do if you miss the rapture? Uh, they print tracks out on what to do if you miss the rapture. Every movie that you see, the guy misses the rapture. And then the rest of the movie is spent him finding his way. And he, and always, he always gets there. I mean, he has to go through some tough times. The Antichrist is terrible, and they're all trying to hunt him and everything. But he finds Christ as his personal Savior, and he gets saved. And, uh, boy, the movie is great. And everybody goes out after the movie, eats, and happy now because it had a happy ending. Let me make the movie. <laughs> Friday the 13th will never be anything compared to my movie. I'll tell you, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If you, certainly in America, if you are someone who has heard the gospel, not 10 times, not 20 times, you know, we get the idea that because we hear the gospel once and reject it, that God owes us a bunch more chances. You know, that's stupid. I got some news for you. He didn't owe you the first chance. What makes you think he owes you a second? Now, you may get one because God is not willing that any should perish, but that's called grace. End of the day, he doesn't owe you anything. The Bible says he is the true light that lighteth every man that comes to the world hundreds of times. Is that what it says? It says he's the true light that lighteth every man that comes into the world. He doesn't owe you two. My point is this. If we're under the sound of my voice and there's somebody out there, certainly in America, that has ever gotten a track, ever heard the gospel, ever had it presented to them, ever been to church, ever had an inkling of truth about God dying for them on the cross, and the rapture takes place today, you're cooked. You're finished. You ain't going anywhere. Now, there's a lot of people who get saved in the tribulation, but they do not get saved the way you and I get saved. Going back to the beginning of our study today, they get saved by either enduring until the end. At first, they have to become a proselyte Jew. And then they have to either endure to the end or they have to get their head cut off. Ain't nobody kneeling down with an open Bible saying, God, come into my heart and save this sinner. That ain't happening. That's in the church age. When the church age ends with the rapture, we enter into a new dispensation. There is no Holy Spirit of God here on this earth in the sense of it being here now in believers. Because when you get taken out, I mean, <coughs> where do you think the Holy Spirit of God is at today? Washington? Where do you think it resides? Where do you, you talk about, well, the Holy Spirit of God, where is it here at today? You know where it's at? It's in you. It isn't at 
Starbucks. It isn't at, at, at Chili's. It's in you. It resides in you. It doesn't reside in some spirit floating off. It's in you. And when you're gone, it's gone. It's just that simple. Boy, is that a foreign concept today. But that's okay. Now look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we beseech you, uh, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word or by letter as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, that the man of sin be revealed, uh, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself of all that is called God and is worshipped, uh, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Now ye know that withholdeth that he might be taken, uh, might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Now, the mystery, this is what I told you a little earlier. Right now, as in Paul's time, but certainly right now too, the mystery of iniquity and that's one of the seven mysteries in the Bible, which we'll get to. The mystery of iniquity is already at work. The Antichrist is already putting his plan in the past. has been for many, 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 many hundreds of years. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of his way. Now, that's you and me. In other words, we're holding back the mystery of iniquity because the Holy Spirit of God is inside you. But when you're taken out of the way, rapture, there's nothing to hold it back. What happens after verse 7? And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, that's Revelation 19, and destroy with the brightness of his coming, Revelation 19. So you and I, with the Holy Spirit of God, is what's holding it back right now. When the rapture takes place, you're gone. Holy Spirit's gone. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible that shows you that the devil can heal. Notice the three things there. Notice the three things. Power, signs, and wonders. The same three things the, the apostles did. Uh, when in Matthew chapter 10, when, when, Judas, or when Jesus sent the twelve out to heal the sick, raise the dead, give eyesight black to the blind, Judas went along with him. In John chapter 6, verse 7, he told you clearly he was a devil and he had the power to heal. Tell that to your charismatic friends. And with all, uh, even him who's coming after the work of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness to them that perish, now here it comes, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Then somebody is left because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now let's see who those people are or what happens to them. And for this cause, well, stop. What cause? The cause because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, the cause that I just gave you, shall God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. All right. Then he's going to, he just told us that those in the church age who uh, received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, then God is going to send them, once they're left, a strong delusion that they believe a lie. What's the purpose of that? Verse 12, that they all might be damned. You see that? Now, that'd make a great movie. 
Well, I can just see. You want to get people saved? Just put that movie into play. Have a guy out there, you know, and he's left behind and he, he remembers a sermon or this or that and then he, he, he gets delusional and then he, he, he gets his senses back and he starts to do what's right. He gets saved every day, asks God to save him, da 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 and he's doing good and he's doing good and he gets up to that thing and then he winds up in hell. That'd be a great movie. That'd be a good movie. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So that goes to show you that if you missed the rapture of the church and you've had a presentation of the gospel, and I, I don't, don't ask me what degree that is, that's up to God. I don't know. I'm just telling you. If, if, if in God's mind you had the light that he gave you, and uh, you're not going anywhere. And that is absolutely, completely against everything that's taught today. Uh, but it's Bible. And when you come to the tribulation period, it may be the most popular subject, but I'll tell you what, it is the most screwed up subject. Now let's talk briefly here about uh, salvation in the tribulation period. And uh, come over to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, come over to Revelation 14 first. Come over to Revelation 14, 12. Let's go there first. Pick it up in verse 11. 12, 14, 11. Revelation 14, 11. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that, here it comes, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now you see that thing? Salvation in the tribulation period is based on two things. It's a composite between the Old Testament nation of Israel and what Christ did. Nobody is getting saved by faith through grace. It's a system of works. I'll show you even more clearly. Now we come over to Revelation chapter 1-5. I gave you this a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning. Now in Revelation chapter 1, we're dealing with the church age, the churches. Look what he says in verse 5, John writing to the church. And from Jesus Christ, who was the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now that verse clearly says that Christ washed you and me. Salvation by faith through grace plus nothing. Plus nothing. Now come over to Revelation chapter 7. Verse 14, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, last three and a half years, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now you see the difference? In the church age, Christ washed me. In the tribulation, they have to wash their own robes. 
It's a system of Old Testament commandments and faith in Jesus. Now, do you notice something back here in Revelation 14? It didn't say faith in Jesus Christ. It didn't say faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It said faith in Jesus. You know why? Because that's who they crucified. They're not, they're not coming to Christ as their Savior. They're coming to Christ as their Messiah, recognizing that the man Jesus, that God sent them, and they crucified, Acts 2.38, God made both Lord and Christ. So they have to come in the name of Jesus. That's who they crucified. It ain't the same. Never was the same, never will be the same, and it ain't the same today or tomorrow. Salvation is two different things. Now, let me show you how you solve a little problem that I always chuckle when I see people come over to the book of James. My, 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 the problems we as little Christians get into. How many times have I heard little discussions going back and forth about the book of James? Faith without works is dead. And oh, we just try to find a way around that. Look at verse, look at chapter 2, verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? And we'll just dig all day long. We'll just, well, we, what do we do? Ooh, we got to get around that. It looks like faith for works for salvation. Ooh, we got to get around it. Oh, I know what I'll say. I'll just tell him that, yes, the works proves your faith. It sounds really good. I mean, I almost believe that myself. Look at verse 23, 24, 25. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God and was imputed unto him for righteousness, and it was called the friend of God. Now you see how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only? Now what do you do with that? You know, if you're a New Testament Christian and you've got to come up again, what do you do with somebody who throws those verses at you? What do you got somebody out there that believes you've got to work your way to heaven and faith and work? What do you do with that? That's pretty clear. I'll read it again in case you were not paying attention. You see then how not a man, works of a man is justified and not by faith only? Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, honestly, what do you do with that? Somebody throws that in your face and says, see, you've got to work your way to heaven. What do you do with that? Oh, I know what you do. You do what all Baptists do. You, come, you do that little shuffle and you just come up with, well, that just simply means that, you know, if you have your, your works prove your faith. That's not what it says. It's not what it says at all. It's not what it even begins to say. Now, let me show you how to deal with somebody that's that stupid when it comes to the Bible. All I've got to do, it's real simple. See here? Watch this. <laughs> Turning one page. I'm amazing. You know how I know what he's saying there isn't a contradiction of what I believe? Look at James 1, verse 1. 
James, a servant of God, to the Lord, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. He wasn't even writing to the churches. He's written to the twelve scribes, Jewish tribes. You know what? That's a tribulation book. You don't believe it? Come over here. James chapter 5. Look at 5 uh, verse uh, uh, 7. Be patient therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husband waited for the precious fruit of the earth. and Precious fruit. There's your fig tree. There's your fig tree. Behold, the husband waited for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long waited unto it until received the early and latter rain. Every, everybody in this church, as anybody knows that the former and latter rain has to do with the last half of the tribulation period. Be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. He said in Matthew 24 that he was at the door. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. Behold, you count them happy when you endure, like endure unto the end, Matthew 24. You've heard of the patience of Job. Job! Job, the whole book's a picture of the Jew in the tribulation period. Look at verse 11, 14. Is there a man sick among you? Let him call upon the elders of the church. Now, see, that throws you off, you see. Because you say, oh, there it is, the church, the church. You're so stupid you don't know there's five or six churches in the Bible. This is the church in the tribulation period. Just like the Old Testament was called the church of the wilderness. Just like this is called the church of the grace of God. But you're going to get that. If somebody's sick among you, let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So you know what he got a bunch of goofy Baptists doing? Hey, I've been part of it. Somebody's sick, got terminal cancer. I've been through five of these. On three of them, I felt terribly responsible because I was the guy instructed to go down to get the oil. Guy dying of cancer, all the, all the people met in the pastor's office. They were going to anoint him with oil as the final thing to save him from cancer. So, Bob, I'm the new guy on the block. Bob, go down to the kitchen and get some oil. Well, now, you know what pressure that is on me? Especially when they all died. For years, I worried I got the wrong oil. I'm faced there in the pantry. There's Wesson oil, corn oil. There's over here for the bus guy, there's 40 weight oil. What oil do I get? I mean, obviously, the easiest thing is a can of WD. You can just hit them with a squirt. But that might be the wrong oil. There was three-in-one oil. We took him up there. He sat there. We all prayed. Pastor put oil on his forehead. Six weeks later, he was dead. Wrong oil. No, wrong dispensation. That's not the church age. And how I know that? One page. One page. And a prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. If he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Now look at verse 17. Elias was a man, that's Elijah, 
spelled the different Old Testament and New Testament. Elias was a man who told the life pastors we are on. He prayed early that it might not rain, and it rained not three and a half, uh, th- three years and six months. There's the first, there's the, there's the last half of the tribulation period. And then uh, he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. There's the second coming of Christ with the millennium. And notice the earth is bringing forth its fruit. There's Israel. The fig tree is finally budded and brought fruit. So, you know, when you get over there and you're dealing with some idiot who tries to tell you that in James, when it says faith without works is dead, he's absolutely right. The only problem is that James is the system of works in the tribulation period, and Romans is a system of works in the church age. And in the church age, there is no works. It's by grace through faith. In the tribulation period, there is works. Faith in Jesus Christ and the command, faith in Jesus and the commandments of God. Washing your own robe. And the difference is between the two books, one written to the Jew, one written to the church. It's just that simple. I mean, has anything I said today been hard to grasp? But you've got to know where you're looking. Now, along with that, moving along here, we've got, uh, um, I'll just give you these, and uh, we've got 144,000 people showing up uh, that are Jewish evangelists. You'll find them in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, and Revelation 7, verse 4. They go out in the tribulation period in the last three and a half years, and they preach to the, preach to the Gentiles primarily. And you'll find that in Matthew, uh, you'll find, uh, I think it's Matthew 22, uh, I think. You, uh, somebody can correct me on that. You'll find where they go out on the highways and the byways and the wedding is furnished with guests. Those are Gentiles. That's 144,000. 144,000 are made up of 12,000 from every tribe. And of course, uh, the modern-day Jehovah Witnesses today, uh, they believe that uh, uh, a remnant of them is the 144,000, and uh, they're the only ones that really reign. And so the Jehovah Witnesses have been around uh, once 1860s, 1840s, somewhere in there. And uh, probably, if you took a final count, uh, from 1840, they've probably got 144,000. Right now, there probably has been over 2 million Jehovah Witnesses that have claimed that 144,000. They're not Jehovah Witnesses. The Bible tells you they're virgins, which is a great key because Jeremiah, who was the only man in the Bible told not to marry, he has to stay a virgin. When he writes his book, it's all about the tribulation period and 144,000 going to the Gentiles. See how it works? Yeah, we get a little bit, and then it just kind of snowballs downhill. I mean, it just gives you all those things. I'm still looking for Matthew here. I want to give you that. What is it? 22.9. 22.9. Did I say 22? Yeah. Yep. Oh, I guessed right. <laughs> now, I, I leave you with this, that uh, Moses and Elijah uh, will be the two witnesses that show up. You'll find them in the book of Revelation around chapter 11. And uh, they are the two witnesses that uh, it's talked about. They're not given by name, but when you go back and study it out, you'll find that it is a Moses and Elijah. And here's the reason for that. Uh, We're dealing in the tribulation with the nation of Israel. The Gentiles are going to get in just because uh, God's going to give everybody an opportunity. And there's Gentiles out there that have never heard the story, so they have to get in. But what the 145,000 preach is the gospel of the kingdom. They don't preach the gospel that you and I believe. They preach the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, the millennial reign of Christ, and they get in on that basis. But Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses that show up that lead to 144,000. And they're called the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. The Antichrist comes down and catches them and kills them. 
and then uh, uh, they get resurrected then at the end uh, with everybody else. But Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses because uh, they represent the two fundamental uh, aspects of the nation of Israel. Uh, Israel falls into two categories uh, once they come out of Egypt. Uh, when they come out of Egypt, they get the law, and Moses represents the law. So they're told to keep the commandments of God, and that'll be Moses. But then they get the, uh, when they get into the, get into the uh, established kingdom, then they get the prophets. And uh, the greatest of the prophets was Elijah. So you have uh, Moses and Elijah, the two greatest men in the nation of Israel's history, Moses under the law, Elijah under the prophets. And so when they come back, because they're under that dual system uh, in the tribulation, the two men that lead them are Moses and Elijah. That's why in Matthew chapter 17, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Christ actually steps beyond the cross and is glorified like he will be at the second coming of Christ, they look up and they see Moses and Elijah. And of course, that's where you're at. Well, we'll hold up there. Now,